Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. As per the Indianapolis Colts, Matt Ryan to the bench, Sam Ellinger suit up, going up against the Washington Commanders. Now, as anybody who watched that game yesterday, Titans 19, Colts 10, this was not an issue with defense. This was an issue with offense. A total lack of offense. But is it all Matt Ryan? What about that offensive line? They brought back the sacks this week. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Is this a story about Matt Ryan's inability to play right now? Just can't make this offense work? Or is there something else going on? JMV joins us right now from 93.5107.5. The Fan, 3 to 6 p.m. He'll have more of this on his show. Uh, But, man, I appreciate you taking the time. We were talking about this just this morning, talking about this offense. And all of a sudden, here's the change. Is this a change in philosophy? Or is there a story here? Well, I think there's a story here. I mean, one is that Matt Ryan, Tony, has a, I think, a grade a grade two, whatever they say, shoulder separation. Now, that's a part of it. But Frank Reich also mentioned just moments ago that this change was going to be made anyway, regardless of the Ryan injury. And this change is being made for what Frank Reich describes as the remainder of the season. Um, he will be, Ellinger will be the starter for the remainder of the season. And here's my theory on this. Um, and I'm, I am pretty educated on it. At least I like to think I am. My theory is that there was a great deal of owner motivation that is backing this up here too. I think that. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Is, hold yeah, on, I hold do. on. I we, do. We're going to yeah. take this in a couple of parts. Somebody get me a cocktail. We're going to take this <laughs> in a couple yeah. of parts, man. Because you just said some stuff that is huge. First. First, let's talk injury. What shoulder separation? When did we know about this? Um, I, I forget. I think it was in the second half. He got – it was that uh, kind of jailbreak blitz that, um, you know, again, the offensive line can't, you know, block normally anyway. But in a blitz situation, they have no hope right now. So, he got hammered pretty good by about three or four different dudes. And he, he I think Nelson picked him up, and he kind of – he looked wobbly going to the sideline. In fact, it might have been before the end of the half. But at any rate, you could kind of tell right there that something happened. He was hurting somewhere, and apparently uh, he has got what they call, I think, a grade two shoulder separation. He was not, Tony, going to practice anyway this week. He wasn't going to practice, but Frank Reich had mentioned that that did not dictate this change. Which brings us to the part two. You're saying that Coach Reich is making the statement that this is the change. We went out there. We spent the money. This guy is Matty Ice. He's the best. We are seven games in. We're 3-3-1. And the answer is new quarterback for the rest of the season. And then you drop the bomb that you think that this is motivated by Jim Ursay. What makes you say that? Uh, because Jim Irsay is a big fan of Sam Ellinger. I think that's one of the chief reasons why Sam Ellinger was brought up to the active roster in the first place. And Nick Foles, you know, was that high-dollar backup, now third stringer, that is inactive each and every week 
on this roster. That was all, you know, to me, a lot of motivation, maybe not all, but a lot. They're going to say that it was a collaborative effort in coming up with this decision, but I think there was a great deal of leaning going on here where Jim Irsay wanted to see Sam Ellinger in an offense that cannot protect his quarterback, somebody that can move a little bit more, can be more active when flushed out of the pocket. That's, I think, a lot of what's going on here. Right or wrong, we'll see. I mean, a lot of people are asking me, Tony, are they punting on the season? I don't think they're punting on the season. Again, you and I are on the same page with this. It all starts with the offensive line. They're going to go as far as this offensive line goes, and this offensive line is not going to protect Sam any more than it protected Matt Ryan. I think we understand that the way that it's playing. They're just trying something new, and I think that Jim Irsay had heavy influence on Ellinger being elevated to the backup and heavy influence on us along with this shoulder injury, seeing Ellinger right now when we will coming up on Sunday. Talking to JMV from 93.5107.5, the fan, 3 to 6 p.m. Matt Ryan to the bench, uh, that possible shoulder separation. But according to JMV, this would have been the plan anyway, and it's Sam Ellinger who will be making his way to the starting position. Before we get into Sam Ellinger, who had a very, very good preseason, Nick Foles is the backup now who got then demoted to the number three. You're putting this all on Jim Irsay, which creates a whole other conversation about who's actually coaching this team. Um, but is why wasn't Nick Foles uh, brought up having more experience in Ellinger? Uh, because, again, listen, these are decisions that are all being made still football operationally speaking. I just think that Jim Irsay had a great deal of influence on this. I don't know how to what level but it's saying, hey, I wouldn't mind to see this guy. Let's see this guy. He can move. Because, I mean, you do bring up a great point, Tony. When you're thinking about Nick Foles, you have the history in Philadelphia with Nick Foles and Frank Reich. Why not bring him up and install him as what the plan was going to be in the offseason as the starter if something happened with Matt Ryan? But they didn't expect this. And what I mean by this, Tony, they didn't expect this offensive line to be absolutely broken, I believe, beyond repair. Certainly anything longer-term repair-wise is not going to happen with this group. I think they, I think that they want to see Ellinger. I think more than they, I think Jim Arsay would want to see Ellinger. They believe that he can move around and he can maybe sustain a little bit more and not take the sacks with all that pressure the offensive line is is giving up. It's a pipe dream, believe me. As much as I like Sam, this isn't going to work either. As much as I like him, this isn't going to work because it is all broken at the front here. It is broken with what Chris Ballard put together with this offensive line, the highest paid O-line in the NFL. They can't protect Ryan Ellinger, Foles, Katz, JMV, Hammer, Nigel, nobody. No protection. Zero. You are, you are, you've been in a mood today. I'm just, I I'm am. just noticing, man, that, that the, the conversation that you're having is, is really kind of nuanced because to argue that this is all happening football operationally, but your belief, and I got to mm -hmm. assume that this is coming from maybe some of your uh, level of sources, uh, that Jim Irsay might be having a, a pretty loud voice in this, then going directly at Chris Ballard for putting together an offensive line that simply can't 
protect, but we're still not discussing whether or not an offensive line coach uh, gets fired. We're going to ride like this to the rest of the season with a quarterback whose legs are young enough to escape the onslaught coming at him because no changes will come on that offensive line. Nobody now thinks of this team as a playoff contender in any way, correct? And you know what's funny about it? They're still 3-3-1, three, three and one, and it's right. ridiculous. They have one win within the division, and who knows? It's not like, Tony, Tennessee is not, like, really good, better than the Colts. They're just tougher than the Colts. They're just better coached than the Colts, for example. Hey, here's another layer of this issue we haven't talked about. Frank Wright. I mean, Frank Reich, the way he handled yesterday, you, you throw a 37-year-old quarterback out there and, you know, and act like you're going to go you know, up and down the field, throw it 58 times last week, utilize Jonathan Taylor upon his return as little as you did yesterday. There is a great deal that is going on Frank Reich's shoulders. But what can you do right now? You ask, all right, who's going to make example of here? Well, we've already seen Blankenship. They made an example of him. Danny Pinter, they made an example of him. Uh, so next up on this list now with an injured shoulder is going to be Matt Ryan. You'll see what Ellinger could do. It is almost just like passing the buck, and they're going to pass the buck until the end of the season when this team ends up disappointing and then you're going to end up going out and finding a new head coach. That's what's going to happen at the end of the year. It's just not going to happen right now. You, so you're placing your marker down right now. Yeah. Uh, win, lose, or draw, uh, it will be Frank Reich's uh, uh, time in Indianapolis. In your view, over. Yeah, I think this is going to be, unless there's some kind of miraculous you know, change of whatever and they start winning and – well, I just don't see it happening. I mean, you and I both watch this team weekly. I mean, you just don't see it happening. And there is a large part of it, certainly, that is on the shoulders of the coach. And really, you know, the next up, you know, outside of some of the underlings, some of the assistant coaches, some of the players that are going to be scapegoated in this, it's going to end up being the head coach. And, hey, don't get me wrong. Chris Ballard has a great deal. You can make an argument, Tony, that if right. Frank Wright goes, Chris Ballard needs to go. But it's going to be Frank Reich at the end of the season, considering this team is not nearly going to be living up to expectations. JMV 93.5-1075. The fan, 3 to 6 p.m. is where you catch him. He'll have more on this story. Matt Ryan to the bench. Sam Ellinger will be the starting quarterback for the Colts. More ahead. I'm Tony Katz. I was very happy to see this victory for free speech. This story out of California about a bakery that was being sued because they wouldn't make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The owner of the bakery saying it violated her Christian beliefs. It was the Department of Fair Housing and Employment that had sued the bakery, arguing that the owner intentionally discriminated in violation of California's uh, uh, Civil Rights Act. The attorneys for the bakery said it's free speech and free expression of of religion that trumps anything having to do with an anti-discrimination law. And it was last Friday where the Kern County Superior Court Judge Eric Bradshaw ruled that this bakery, Kathy Miller, the owner, acted lawfully while upholding her beliefs about what the Bible teaches regarding marriage. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it is not that I agree or disagree. My agreement or disagreement with the baker is totally inconsequential. What matters is the baker gets to make the decision. Just like we saw with Masterpiece Cake Shop. 
You won't decorate a cake, we sue you. Oh, you win that basically by these strange margins within the Supreme Court about a very thin kind of ruling? We'll sue you again. That's what's been happening. Do what we tell you to do or we'll take you out of business. The government being utilized to abuse those who don't go along with the quote-unquote conventional wisdom. Let's talk about the bullying from all of these so-called good, decent people. Why would you want somebody who doesn't want to design your cake to design your cake? Why would you want that? That's the weirdest thing in the world. If you don't want my business, why am I fighting to give you my business? Isn't it better to go to somebody who wants the business? That's the rational course. Their argument is you have to do it. You're not allowed to have a different point of view. Look, there are people out there who hate me because of my religion. I don't actually care about that. You want to go about hating me so you don't decorate my cake? Thanks for letting me know. I'm going to tell all my friends not to buy a cake from you. And then I'm going to get a cake from somebody else. Force you to make my cake if you don't like me? Let me ask, in a, in a very rational way, would you eat that cake? I'd be a little weirded out about eating that cake, personally. I think I would avoid eating that cake. But why would I ever want to spend my money with you if you don't like me for who I am? If you don't accept me for who I am or anything like that, why would I want to give you my money? And you realize the level of depravity and brutality that comes from some of these people. Their ideology is, is so overwhelming and their ideology is all based on making people comply. In the end, what they want, what they desire is compliance. What they want, what they desire, what they need is for you not to have a say for you not to be able to have any other thought. You must do what you are told. You must be controlled. You, you think I'm making that up? I'm, there's no part of me that's making this up. This is very obvious about what it is they are all about, how it is they operate. Think of these two stories. This one uh, for the baker in California, this one for the baker in Colorado. I think the baker in Oregon got thrown out, right? Wasn't able to stay in business because of, 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 of all the lawsuits. Why would you want to force somebody to do it unless your ultimate desire is their compliance? That they shouldn't be able to have a say. That you think someone is bigoted is different than whether or not they're allowed to be bigoted. Oh, they're allowed to be bigoted. And if you're offended, well, okay, but nothing has to happen past your offense. I'm offended by many, many things. Doesn't mean I get to do anything about it. I note something, I'm like, that's disgusting. I stay away from it, I move on. My kid, my, my youngest, who is on a, t my, my, first of all, I, I should finish the story. My youngest was trying to figure out how to get some Yeezys, you know, the Kanye West shoe, and then, uh, clean them up or do whatever, flip them, try it, see if, uh, you know, you can make some some cash in, the, in this whole uh, sneaker market. Me, I'm not opposed to that, you know, a bit of capitalism. I dig it. See, learn the market, see how things can sell, see what you can do, see where the buy and sell is. I'm willing to try uh, uh, some things. Oh, not with Yeezy. Not buying any Kanye shoes. And of course, uh, it, Kanye just got dropped by, uh, what's oh, what's the name of the group? What's the name of the group right there? Uh, 
Balenciaga, that's it. Uh, and uh, they're not going to be selling uh, his his gear anymore. Look, if, if you want to take a look at what Kanye has said and be like, I don't want to be in business with them anymore, uh, you, you can do that. Uh, Kanye's like, see, this is proof of being canceled by the Jewish media. Oh, holy heck, dude. Holy heck, man. Uh, this isn't being canceled by the, the Jewish media uh, because the idea of Jewish media, to me, most laughable because if there was a Jewish media, do you think I'd let half the crap that's on TV be actually be on there? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. But my kid has been on a, a tear, on a tear, because Halloween is on a, a Monday night, and they're like, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, Halloween has to be on the Saturday uh, before Halloween, so you can do all the trick-or-treating, and then, and then you don't have to wake up early and go to school the next day which is something I wholeheartedly agree with. All, we, we, we should be doing this, whether it's in my beloved Indiana or anywhere else across the country. We should be doing this. Halloween celebrated the Saturday night before Halloween. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. That's the day to have the trick-or-treating done. I agree. I couldn't agree, agree more. Now, you could be offended by what I said. You could totally be offended by what I just said. But that's where it ends. Part of the argument about offense is that people are like, you have no right to offend people. Of course, you, you can offend people. You're not, you, you could offend somebody without even knowing it. If I don't want to make your cake, I shouldn't have to. Where is my right to say no? As I've discussed many, many times, if you cannot say no, you are not actually free. If you cannot say no, you are not a free person. The difference between the free person and the slave is the ability to say no. And what the left and these radicals want is for you not to be a free person. They don't believe in your right to say no. They believe you're offensive. And I believe who gives a good holy damn. I've run into a lot of offensive people in my day. I avoid them. And they didn't come out to be offensive to you. You just think they're offensive because they won't do the thing you want them to do. Well, okay, go find somebody else. That's what I would want to do. I would want to support people who support me. That's the rational take. But there's no rationality here. There's only the desire for power. There is only the desire to get people to comply. Force people to do the thing they don't want to do. Force. Political left can't understand that we see them when they are this violent. They're the ones who believe in government force to get you to do things you don't want to do. They believe in the struggle sessions. They believe in the pain. I'm very happy to see this decision out of California. I'm happy that this baker can go about doing what this baker wants. I don't know if they're any good or not. You can give them a shot or not. That's totally up to you. More ahead. I'm Tony Katz. So perhaps you saw the video, the video that shows the former, you'll call it the president of China, leader of China, Hu Jintao, being removed from a Politburo meeting. Well, this Politburo meeting was going to allow Xi Jinping to have a third term, an unprecedented third term. What it's doing is it's a coronation. You're saying that Xi Jinping is the dictator of China. And if there's a third term, why wouldn't there be a fourth or a fifth or a sixth? You have the man who wants to get to Belt and Road. You have the man who wants to have China dominance in the South China Sea, in uh, that, that area of the Pacific Rim, who wants to be able to control the 5G protocols. 
now solidifying the power to be able to do so, and in doing so, also solidify the power to be able to have no one to oppose him. I didn't think that was going to be the former president of China, Hu Jintao, who was there uh, through 2012. So why in the world was the man forcibly removed from a Politburo meeting? Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today. Steve Yates joins us right now. He's a senior fellow and chair at the China Policy Initiative at American First Policy Institute, also an advisor to a whole group of people on national security concerns specifically relating to China. You're the guy I reached out to. The minute I saw this video, Steve, and I said, what in the world am I looking at? And your response was was classically you, which is, I'm not sure yet what we're looking at. And anybody who says otherwise is lying through their teeth. It's been a couple of days. What's your take on Hu Jintao being removed from this Politburo meeting? Well, Tony, I appreciate you reaching out on this. Uh, it, it remains the case that Chinese politics is probably the most secure black box on the planet. Uh, the, and I stand by basically the judgment that people who assert that they know why these things are happening, etc., tend not to be those who know. There's an old Taoism uh, quote that comes from, uh, I think it's chapter 56 of the Tao Te Ching that says, those who know do not speak and those who speak do not know. And in the Chinese Communist Party, if you speak out of turn, uh, you could end up in jail, things can happen to your family, you can be disappeared or die. Uh, but for the most part, what we saw is these gatherings are very, very scripted. We're also dealing with really old men. There has to be a logical possibility that it's, there's some truth to the state media account that he had a health issue, but it was right there in front of the whole world to see. Extremely awkward to watch. And no matter what the cause was, the net effect is that Xi Jinping looked like he was showing the whole world who's the boss. But I, I think for a lot of us, the question is, why would you show that at the expense of Hu Jintao, the, the former president of China? What is the interplay there over the last few years about uh, who and, and, and what he thinks of what Xi Jinping is doing? Right. Well, from the period of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, he's the leader that came to the U.S. with the 10-gallon hat. Uh, had a lot of personal rapport with American leaders and sold the idea that China was biding its time and hiding its capabilities and was going through a reform and opening period that would have a cooperative relationship with the world. China poses no threat, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of ethos went through multiple iterations of Chinese leaders who observed these term limits, uh, and the last of which was Hu Jintao, who handed the reins over to Xi Jinping in 2012. Uh, and so the symbolism of this treatment of Hu Jintao is important in the sense that Xi Jinping demonstrates a significant break from that perceived more moderate approach by the Communist Party of China leaders uh, from the normalization of diplomatic relations and really, we've seen it over his entire tenure with wolf warrior diplomats lecturing and hectoring American counterparts, uh, attacking politicians in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, and other parts of the world. Just this, this deeper dive into nationalism and an aggressive and expansive authoritarianism 
like with the crushing of Hong Kong, is Xi Jinping's brand. That is not what Hu Jintao did. Uh, and so that, I think, is the reason for the perceived contrast. Talking to Stephen Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. I just, uh, you spend more time studying this than I do. Have there been moments, you talk about people in the Politburo not speaking out, speaking out could get you disappeared, for example. I mean, that's the expression when all of a sudden people like Jack Ma from Alibaba or this tennis player who, whose name eludes me right now, all of a sudden disappear from public view. That's called being disappeared, and Lord only knows what happens to them. Uh, has Hu Jintao been speaking out about Xi Jinping, saying this is the wrong approach? Uh, I, don't, I don't see any evidence that Hu Jintao was leading some kind of a faction to either block Xi Jinping from having an additional term, uh, but it's been widely reported and probably true that Xi Jinping has not gotten along with all of his perceived rivals and predecessors. Uh, he has marginalized each of them in, in significant ways by process and by substance. Uh, and in the personnel appointment process, there are uh, there, there's a top layer of this Politburo Standing Committee that makes all the decisions they say in consultation and consensus, but Xi Jinping has stacked every member of that decision-making body with people who are loyal to him. And so the, uh, the vestiges of Hu Jintao's 10 years in government and the personnel he promoted moved aside, much less the Jiang Zemin uh, era that came before that was uh, still communist. I don't want anyone to misunderstand. These are not kind people. Uh, but their style and approach in engaging the world was different. Uh, and Xi's harder line is now backed up by personnel that controls process from top to bottom now. So now let's talk about what we get with another five years. And really, we are talking about a lifetime of, of uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, the, the push towards Belt and Road, the push towards more military dominance, the push uh, that we're seeing against Taiwan and and everyone assumes that we will see within the next year or so China's move to reunify uh, Taiwan in in their one China policy uh, theories. Then, of course, the continued theft of of U.S. technology and the desire to control uh, 5G. What is what are the steps that we think that Xi Jinping is going to take? How does this move on the presidency allow him to do this further? Uh, and what what is your view on American response? Well, the the intentions that Xi Jinping and his government have had have been pretty clear. Uh, in in some ways, that's pre- that's the transparent part of their government. Uh, they have said very clearly that. America is their enemy. It's not that uh, we're a competitor, that's our way of life is adversarial to theirs. Uh, and in the language that she was uh, advocating through this Communist Party Congress, it was very nationalistic, it was very communist and socialist. Uh, and so there are a lot of deep uh, ideological undertones and very authoritarian. Uh, but it's uh, couched in ways that will make China take its supposedly deserved leadership role in the world and push back against the Americans who, in their, in their theory, 
of the world have been imposing all kinds of horrible things on them, like prosperity and technological advancement and things like that. Um, but where it goes, uh, I, I agree very much with uh, your focus on 5G and technology. I think that is an underappreciated area uh, where the supply chains are important uh, and our livelihoods depend. Uh, Taiwan is important to me. I lived there. I was a missionary there. Uh, it's a democracy. It's the only democracy in the world the United States doesn't establish diplomatic relations with. I hope people will question our leaders about that. But really, it is a litmus test for where China is going more broadly. And it's this control over supply chains, control over sea lanes and air lanes, control over technology uh, that they seek to use as leverage to impose their will and to block our ability to advocate our interests uh, or try to deter them. So I, I think that we have had an awakening in America and some other places, but we're at the front end of that, needing to strategically decouple anything that we must rely upon for our way of life. We can't afford to have a government like this have leverage over us and control over those supply chains. Now, when you talk about decoupling, you're not going Gwyneth Paltrow. You're discussing the idea uh, that we need to move more manufacturing back to the United States. Is it back to the United States, or are there other nations that you feel we should be moving it to? Clearly, uh, China knows this is happening. It was Japan that put billions of dollars to saying, if you bring it back here, we'll pay for to, to make that happen. Um, what is China's response to people trying to move production out of, of China? Do, are we talking about a reduced level of trade? What happens if China decides to reduce trade levels with the United States, which I does, would assume would be very, very difficult for them because we're, we're the big trade partner. Um, how are they responding to this? Well, you're exactly right. The government of Japan did put billions of dollars up to try to encourage some of its uh, mega companies to reshore manufacturing back to Japan. Uh, and we uh, in the United States, uh, uh, counterparts in Taiwan, other countries need to do the same thing. It's not an on-off switch. And this concept of strategic decoupling is one that was coined by my colleague here at America First Policy Institute, Ambassador Bob Lighthizer. And it just admits this is not going to be something that can be done in a day or a month or a year. But we must begin the movement now, and we move to safe shore if we can't onshore, and we move what we can, not because of malice towards the Chinese people, but because their government is not a reliable partner, has proven an ability to unleash a virus on the world that killed millions of people and stole trillions of dollars of value out of our economies. Uh, and so this is not free trade or fair trade, we must begin this process. Now, if they want to sell and we want to buy the kinds of things that fill discount store shelves, that's not what I'm talking about. But when it comes to uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, communications technology, things that are strategic to our way of life, we can't afford to be overly dependent on them. We must begin minimizing that, safe-shoring it with the ultimate goal of independence for the United States where achievable, just like with energy. But China's aware of this. If we talk about Xi Jinping and his desires, he's aware of this and he needs to mitigate this. So is there a question of how that's done? Is there a concern, I should say, about how that's done? There, There's a question. Uh, I mean, the concern is that this is a disruptive 
uh, factor in the global economy. It's disrupt, disruptive to the American economy. Uh, but we've already been rocked a couple of hard times because of things out of China. Uh, so we don't get the luxury of choosing an easy path. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, the Chinese are aware of this. There's two fronts that they have tried to work very hard to insulate against. One is sanctions styled after those that were imposed upon Russia when Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, as, as immediately as that unfolded, China began trying to put policies in place to position itself so it would be less vulnerable to those kinds of sanctions, or in their estimation, less likely that Western powers could or would impose them. Uh, the second area is they've tried to uh, force their own companies to revive domestic consumption uh, and to increase their partnerships and collaboration with Russia, Iran, and other countries that seem to be in this similar axis of do no good, if not evil. Uh, and uh, so that has been the sort of early stages of what they've tried to do by way of their reaction. But the fact of the matter is China's economy is not altogether stable. Uh, they need this trade. Uh, and basically, it is up to us and our partners around the world to impose some kind of standards. Otherwise, we just have uh, basically voted by our pocketbooks uh, to give in to this kind of bullying by China. Before I, I let you go, two things we can give quick answers to. Is there enough economic destabilization possible in China for the people to say we don't want Xi anymore and for the Politburo to make changes? There is, but that is very extreme if you look back over Chinese history. And so I, I basically would see this as much more likely to be a gradual approach. The, the second question is, there's a lot of talk about the Chinese owning businesses in the United States, owning farmland in the United States. I make the argument that on a national security basis, Chinese nationals, anyone associated with the CCP, uh, cannot own property in the U.S. This has been my take for a while now. Is there any conversation about this going on in any serious quarter? Very much so. And, and your principle is correct. No foreign national has a right to be in our country, uh, to be in our education system, to own property, land, whatever that may be. Those are privileges. And uh, when we look out into the world, uh, it's very, very important to look at the nature of the governments that are sending people and trying to engage in commerce in our country. Uh, and so uh, we at the America First Policy Institute have been advocating, like you, for some time, some restrictions on these things. We've advocated in the states while waiting for Congress to catch up with the American people. Uh, we've worked with ALEC and other organizations to have model policy to block Chinese Communist Party entities from buying agricultural land, but frankly, any form of real property in the United States, because China is a different kind of threat. And until its government changes, we can't allow them to exercise leverage over our food supply or otherwise engage freely in our country when we obviously can't engage freely in theirs. Steve Yates, Senior Fellow and Chair of China Policy Initiative at the American First Policy Institute. I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So are we taking bets as to whether or not John Fetterman does this debate on Tuesday in Pennsylvania. We're talking about the Democrat running for Senate, the man who had the stroke and clearly is not okay, and his wife has been the one kind of 
Like, is she running for office? Oh, it's pictures of her on Air Force One. Oh, it's her answering the question. It's And there's these glowing reviews. Uh, uh, you know, she, she had no interest in politics, and now look at her. Her husband cannot answer a sentence or cannot answer a question. He cannot engage a sentence to do so. He had a stroke. He needs time to recover from it to the very best of his ability. And it's possible that that takes you out of being a U.S. senator. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, I'm I'm 50-50 on whether or not he does it. I'm 50-50 on whether or not, no matter what year today, I'm 50-50 on whether or not John Fetterman can do this debate. Whether he will do this debate. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't put money on it. I wouldn't put money on it. And no matter what happens when he's unable to answer a question or un- unable to understand a back and forth, it'll be, oh, look at what Dr. Oz is doing. Look at how despicable he's being. That's not the way you treat a patient. What kind of doctor is he? It'll be all that. Yeah, pay no attention to that. You're running for office. You have to be able to answer questions. If you can't, you're not the guy for the office. Like Joe Biden, who is not capable of doing the job because, well, he's just not. But I'll get into more of that tomorrow, everyone. Take care.